Thank you. I just want to echo what Matt said and, and just say that I, I really do believe I'm doing a great job as a parent. And um, <laughs> that's good. All right. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we're excited about Easter. Also, you may have noticed we got new connection cards. Uh, it's kind of simplified them. They're in your seat uh, pockets there. And uh, so uh, if you're new, let us know who you are and uh, put that in the basket on the back table. We've got a gift for you. That'll be good. All right. So let's uh, continue on in our series, Gospel Restoration. So we've been looking at um, the, what, what I've been calling the fullness of the epic story of God's love. It is, uh, it is kind of this, this idea that um, over the last several hundred, maybe a couple thousand years, uh, we have distilled the gospel message, which is a, a story, uh, just this beautiful, epic story covering centuries. Uh, we have distilled it down into um, kind of a formula for sal- salvation, and I think lost some of the goodness of the good news of God's love. Um, and so we, we started with creation, how God created everything perfect, and moved on to the God, you know, that man sinned and the, the world was broke and fractured and man's relationship with God was fractured from that point on. And God sets into motion a plan to restore things by uh, making a covenant with a guy named Abraham that turned, Abraham's family turns into the nation of Israel. Other covenants are made with them. Uh, law is given to them as a kind of placeholder for the gospel. And then um, after that, uh, prophets begin to, prophesied to Israel that if, if they don't shape up, if they don't become who God intended for them to be, uh, that there would be consequences and, and that would look at, that would be in the form of exile. And that's what happens. Uh, other nations came in, took them over, exiled them. Last week, we get into the uh, New Testament where we start looking at this guy by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who comes on the scene. And Jesus uh, is perceived as uh, the greatest prophet to hit Israel in centuries. And uh, not only by uh, his, the mighty deeds that he was able to accomplish, but also by his teaching. Uh, and he is, his message, his primary message to uh, everybody in Israel that he talks to is, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That God's kingdom is here. And what he meant by that is that the time has come. God is setting all things right. He is fulfilling his promises. He will make you great once again. It is here now. Get ready. And, and, and the, the repent side of that message is, is just this, that you can no longer just uh, count on the fact that you're Israel and that everything is going to be fine. That true Israel is not true Israel by bloodline. True Israel is Israel by faith. Faithful Israel. And he's saying, you guys need to be start being faithful to God again. Repent, turn around, turn back to God. The kingdom of heaven is here. God's kingdom is here now. And so that's prophet Jesus of Nazareth, his message. So this week we get into um, the aspect of Jesus' ministry that we're going to talk about is his sacrifice and all that that meant, the cross and Calvary and that whole story. Now this is the the part of the Christian uh, story that pretty much everybody knows. Like almost everybody in the world has heard uh, some glimpses of, of this story that there was a guy named Jesus who died on a cross and and they've heard that part of the story, right? And and so you would think that that being the most uh, commonly known part of the story, that this message would have been um, 
relatively easy for me to prepare, you, you would think, but it wasn't. Um, every once in a while, a message that I have to prepare comes along that um, I just feel, I, I worded it this way last service, I felt like somebody was standing between me and, and you guys with this message all week long. I struggled in preparation for this message from Monday all the way up until last night, just kind of pouring over how I should present it, what scriptures I should use. Just normally my normal sermon prep process is I start on Monday and, 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 and I pretty much knock out the basic outline of the message within a couple of hours. And then the rest of the week is kind of meditating on that, praying on that, kind of thinking how I'll illustrate certain points, whatever. But normally, like the bones of the message is done Monday morning. This, this one honestly didn't get done till, till last night. I could not get clarity around how I was supposed to present this message. It just, it just felt like, like I said, that, that there was something trying to stand in the way. And, uh, and so uh, last night, I finally kind of gave it to God and said, you know, I, I, I have wrestled with this a hundred different ways. I'm just going to let you do it. Um, and so... So I've got a couple of points that I jotted down for you, um, you know, to kind of help us along. But, uh, you know, a lot of the previous messages messages in this series have been kind of heavy on scripture, heavy on story, on history, heavy on theology. And uh, and so we'll hit a little bit of that this morning. But what I mainly want to do is just kind of talk to you about the cross, just kind of share my feelings about the cross this morning. Um, because it's so much more than just a theological truth. So much more. I mean, it, the cross really is the center of, I was going to say of everything we believe, but it's so much more than that. It's the center of human history. I mean, it, it, all of history rests its weight on those two planks of wood on that hill. And, um, and so we're going to just spend a little bit of time meditating on the cross this morning. Um, I want to, last week we talked about, you know, Jesus's message, kind of his prophetic message to the people. Um, but we didn't really talk about too much about the kind of man he was kind of one of the most telling things that the Bible tells us about who the man Jesus was is, uh, in three or four words, uh, that it tells us that he, he ate with sinners. Jesus was this man, the greatest uh, prophet that Israel had seen in hundreds of years. And one of the things he was most known for at that time was that he ate with sinners. He didn't care. And he, he wasn't seeking uh, political figures to rub elbows with. He wasn't seeking religious leaders to rub elbow, elbows with. He wasn't seeking, you know, fame, or fortune. He just loved people. And he ate with sinners. He ate with sinners so much that he got the reputation of a drunkard and a whoremonger. That's your savior. That's your savior. It'd be interesting if more churches today had similar reputations. We might have to do a little spin on it a little bit, but it would be really interesting if we became known less for what we stand against and more for who we eat with. Um, and Jesus gives us this beautiful example. He would just, he just loved to be with the people that he loved. And he didn't care 
what their background was and what their mistakes were or anything like that. I get the sense that Jesus enjoyed a good time. He enjoyed a party. And, you know, the, the parties with the Pharisees and priests were not that great. Right? They didn't really know how to throw very good parties. Jesus was going to go to where there was laughter and where there was dancing and where there was interesting, uh, maybe even scandalous conversation. He was going to go to where uh, people were having a good time and enjoying life. And those are the kind of people that he was going to hang out with. He ate with sinners. So Jesus is... Again, we talked about last week that, you know, the, the crowds that he is speaking to, the way that everybody perceived him, they were not on the Jesus is God bandwagon yet. They hadn't got there. Hadn't got there. They had no real uh, inclination that that's what was happening. They had been promised a Messiah, somebody who would come and set Israel right again, free Israel from bondage. And so they were looking for a kind of a uh, socio-political uh, figure, somebody who would come and bring Israel to power, you know, its former glory once again, and and would set them out of exile, uh, out of uh, oppression from other nations like Rome and Babylon and other nations that had, had oppressed them for so many years. They were looking for this kind of political figure. And Jesus was ticking off all the boxes in their minds. They were like, more and more people were getting on the bandwagon that this is the guy, this is the Messiah. This may be the one that's, that God has promised that's going to set everything right. They begin to praise God for him and, and th- thank him that God has remembered, or thank God that God had remembered them by sending this guy, Jesus, this great prophet, this person who would leave them uh, to what they had been promised for so many years. But there was a whole lot more to Jesus that they didn't see. There was a whole lot more to Jesus that they didn't see. So the first point I want to bring out is this, that Jesus' death was the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Jesus had said all along when he'd be teaching people that I'm going to, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. But three days later, I'm going to, I'll, I'll be, my body will be raised again. They didn't really understand what he was saying. Some people were like, you know, this doesn't make sense it didn't fit in with their paradigm of what the Messiah was supposed to be. The Messiah was supposed to be this guy, you know, in their mind that was going to reign and uh, rule, you know, kind of set things right, be the powerful figure. Why does he keep saying he's going to die? That, that, that goes against everything we've been, you know, that we've been led to believe. And so they, they weren't seeing it. But what happens is that Jesus does, he, you know, as he begins to reveal more and more that he's not just a good teacher, he's not just a prophet, he is, in fact, the son of God. And other people begin to realize it and say it, and he doesn't stop them from saying it. Gone through about three years of ministry, kind of going around teaching and doing great works and that sort of thing. And then it begins to upset the religious leaders. Son of God. How dare you claim equality with God? How dare you, you know, make claims like that? And when other people are making those claims about you, why aren't you stopping them from saying that stuff? And so... What started off as this great prophet started turning into this, this guy with God delusions that they were like, we got to get a handle on this. It's this sacrilegious, it's blasphemous. And, uh, and so that, this is where Jesus starts, uh, you know, getting into trouble with the religious leaders. He then is eventually arrested and, uh, and savagely beaten 
by the, uh, by the temple officials. He then is turned over to Roman officials where, he's, where he has a trial and uh, is uh, sentenced to death, death on a cross. Uh, it's a criminal's death. It's a shameful death. It's an agonizing, painful death. And uh, he does nothing to stop it. He just goes through with it. And, um, and so that's what happens. Their would-be Messiah is executed in one of the most shameful ways a person could be executed. Now, what do we do with this? We thought he was the one and, and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus' death, once they begin to look back on it, Jesus' death fulfills all the laws all, and everything that the prophets said. I mean, completely, like, fulfilled it so extensively that I honestly don't have the time to get into it. It would be like a multi-week Bible study for me to have to go through detail after detail of how Jesus fulfilled all the law and the prophets. It's so much. So much so that people have said uh, all the hundreds of prophecies about who the Messiah would be. The odds of one man matching up to all of those prophecies are astronomical, like beyond winning the lottery, astronomical. And Jesus matches up perfectly. All the sacrificial laws, there was a sacrificial system set in place as a kind of placeholder for the gospel. Where God said, you know, God's word basically said that if, if you sin against God, there has to be a blood price paid for that sin. And so they would sacrifice goats and lambs and bulls and doves and things like that. Uh, there was a whole detailed system in place. And, and they would make these sacrifices that would kind of, they didn't really erase their sins. It just kind of rolled them forward, just kind of pushed them out of the way, swept them under the rug a little bit, type, type, that sort of thing. And, and it would deal with it in, in that kind of way. Why? Because none of these sacrifices that were set in place were a worthy sacrifice for a holy, perfect God. God's holiness demanded his perfection demanded a perfect sacrifice. And it wasn't until Jesus came about, the only perfect man that ever lived, God in the flesh, living the life that he had actually called all of us to live. He does it perfectly. He's the only one that completely satisfies the sacrificial system. And when I say sac- satisfies it, he obliterates it. His sacrifice of himself is so perfect so holy that it completely destroys the need for any other sacrifices. His sacrifice was good once and for all. Once and for all. It completely fulfilled all the laws. It completely fulfilled all the prophecies that were prophesied about him. And it didn't just fulfill them. A lot of times when we use that word fulfill, we're thinking in terms of, well, there's this list of criteria and Jesus kind of checked all the boxes. It's more like if you order a package, you get a package from Amazon or somewhere like that, and you maybe get that after that package is then delivered and you got your product in hand, you may get this follow-up email that says something to the effect of um, this fulfills our delivery obligation to you. In other words, what they're saying is we're done. We did our part. You ordered something. We got it to you. It is done. It is finished. There's no need for us to keep talking, right? That's what they're basically saying. And it's the same thing with Jesus in that the way that he fulfills the law is that it is such a perfect sacrifice that he's like, that was temporary. There's no need for that anymore. There's a new thing in place now. 
He fulfilled the prophecies in such a way that only he could. It was finished. It was done. It's why he said on the cross, his, one of his, some of his final words, it is finished. My obligation is complete here. I've set everything right. Now, the next thing I want to bring out is this, this statement, that since the Messiah was also God, he could provide so much more than just political freedom. Now, they weren't counting on that. They didn't see that one coming. They were looking for this political Messiah who would come and bring them to power once again and bring back their former glory. But they weren't counting on God himself coming to do this. And since he was God, he was able to provide them for a freedom, uh, provide them with a freedom so great they had not even dared to ask for it. It was so completely far off of their radar. All they wanted was freedom from other nations, freedom from other people, freedom to be powerful as they once had been. And God says, I'm going to set you free. But I'm going to set you free in a way that you have never even considered was possible. I'm going to free you from your sins. I'm going to free you from this fallen world that has separated us from having a relationship together. I'm going to put that right again. And the freedom that God gave because the Messiah was God was a beautiful, full, complete picture of freedom that, again, that was so off their radar to even ask for something like that. God shows up in a way that's just above and beyond what they were hoping for or expecting. And, and can we be honest? Doesn't God always do that? Doesn't God always do that? You'll ask God for something, and, and maybe in your mind it's something big. And how often does God then show up in such a bigger way to blow your request out of the water? Like you're just asking for things that are, that are so small and God wants to bless you with things that only he can bless you with. Only he. So I want to read one passage of scripture to you this morning. And um, it's Paul's little commentary about the cross it, it, in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles from the back, it's page 942. Romans chapter 5. We're going to start with verse 6. And um, this is one of those passages, a little paragraph here. It's one of those paragraphs that you've probably, if you've been in church very long, been a Christian very long, you've probably read this before. And, it's, and since it's Paul and Paul tends to be complex, you probably just kind of rush through it and we're like, glad that's over with, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And so, but I want us to slow it down in this little paragraph because Paul says some just amazing, beautiful things about the cross that I think are worth us taking some time to look at. So he starts off and he says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Stop right there. If, if, if that's all he said, if, if the rest of the paragraph is gone, we could preach several weeks just on that one sentence. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who, who's the ungodly? That's us. That's us. As much as you are trying to be godly, as, as, as much progress as you think you have made in you know, the whole, your whole spiritual journey so far, 
at the end of the day, let's say you get to the end of your life and you have just, I mean, it's a night and day difference from who you are to who you used to be. Compared to holy, perfect God, you're still in the category of ungodly. That's still you. It's still me. And while we were weak, like, I love that, I love that phrase. I love the way he starts off. While we were weak, Jesus did this for us. He didn't wait for us to get ready. He didn't wait for us to kind of earn it a little bit, deserve it a little bit. He just looked at us in our state, in the state that we were in our weakness. And, and at that time, that time, that was the right time. In our state of weakness, turns out that was the right time. He dies for us. I've said this before, like, it's just a good thing. It's like, well, I'm going to read one more, and then I'm going to tell you why it's a good thing I'm not God. Verse 7. For, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Most people, you know, even if it's a good person, most of us aren't going to give, their, give our lives for them. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. Perhaps. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so God looks down at the human condition, and it is jacked up. And it's just as jacked up, if not more jacked up now than, than it ever was. And he, and he sees us in our weakness. And he sees us in our state of just being completely undeserving of, any, of God doing anything good for us. And he says that the time is right now. I'm going to do this now. While we were still sinners. Like, here's the deal. If I'm God, it's because I know the way that I think. Well, let me give you an example of the way that I think. And I'm going to confess something that's going to make me sound like a horrible person. Uh, and it's because I am. And, and, but be honest, you thought it too, and so don't judge me. So I'm going to use the example of my kids. Um, I'm not going to give any personal examples in which to embarrass them. This is embarrassing to me, not to them. Um, if you've had kids for very long, or it, could, it doesn't even have to be kids. It could be your relationship with your parents. It could be your relationship with uh, your spouse, anybody that's kind of close to you, anybody that you have given love to, okay? But I'll, I'll, for me, I'll use the... Like, I've had points with my kids to where, you know, you know when you just for them and give for them and sacrifice for them. Anybody ever just sacrifice to give your kids something that they really, really wanted and that sort of thing? And you just, in your mind, you have just been patient and loving and every, and I have got to the point in, in, in the relationship with, with a few of my kids that I've hit this place where I've said, that, that's it, I'm done. I, I'm just done. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm not doing, I'm, I'm going to feed them I'm going to give them shelter, and that's it. I tapping out, I'm done. Right? Like, they don't appreciate it. And, you know, you just go through this whole thing of, you know, that we go through in our minds. And, and luckily, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of me shortly after that tirade and kind of punches me in the nose and says, you know, okay, you know that's not enough. You need to continue to love your kids, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And, and so, and so, and I, and I do, I do love my kids and you love your kids, but we all hit that level of frustration where it's like, why, why am I, why am I doing this? Maybe it's not your kids. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your whoever. 
But we hit this level of frustration with people that we care about sometimes when we feel like we're not getting enough back for what we're investing in that person. And so if I'm God, if I'm really honest with you about the kind of God that I would be, like if I've got this whole plan of salvation in place where I'm going to send my son to die for the world, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking, I'm scoping the planet, and I'm going, they don't deserve it yet. They've got to climb the mountain. They've got to do something. Give me, give, me, give me a little bit of something in which I can show you some love, but I can't just reward you for nothing. I can't just reward your horrible, rebellious, nasty behavior. So I'm going to look and I'm going to wait and I'm going to just give me a little glimpse. Give me a little glimpse that there's some hope in humanity. And then when I see that glimmer of hope, I'm going to go, okay, Jesus, go, 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 go. No, now, 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 before they screw it up, get down there and do it, right? That's the kind of God I would be. But that's not the kind of God that we have, thank God. The kind of God that we have is a God who looked at the whole human condition in all of its horribleness, violence, and its perversion, its hatefulness, its rebelliousness, rebelliousness against God where most of humanity just kind of looks at God and says, I'm going to do this my way. Forget you. God looks down at all of that and he goes, okay, now's the right time to go. Completely undeserving. Completely undeserving. Paul then says this. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That word justified is a legal term. And it means that Everything is set level again. Everything is set level again. When I was in Sunday school as a kid, my Sunday school teacher would say, the way to remember what justified means is it's just if I'd never sinned. Just if I'd never sinned. In other words, God, because we've been justified by the blood of Christ, God looks at us and he sees, instead of our sinfulness, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. He looks at us and he sees Jesus. We're justified. We're justified. And so we're saved. We're saved from God's wrath. Look at that next word. For if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, (coughs) how much more? (coughs) Pardon me. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? But this is what the cross did. It not only kind of erased our sin, but it reconciles us back to God. That fracture that happened in all of creation, that fracture that happened where where we were once in this beautiful union with God and now we can't be because of our sinfulness and His holiness, that has been erased and we have been reconciled to God. Everything is set right again. Everything is set right. We now, because of what Jesus did, we are able to be in the presence of God. To have a relationship with a holy, perfect God. There's so many of you in this room that are 
constantly, almost daily, convincing yourself that that fact is not true. So many of you live your life as if there is no reconciliation between you and God. Or if there is, it's only when you're being good. It's only when you're doing good things. It's only when you're sitting in a church, singing songs, listening to a sermon. It's only when you're actually remembered to read your Bible. It's only when you, you know, you live your life as if your relationship with God is broken. And I'm telling you, your relationship with God This applies to everybody in this room, not just some of you. Your relationship with God is restored. It's restored. It's fixed. You can be one with God again. You can be one with God again. And you have convinced, you have been listening to the wrong voices. You have been listening to Satan just tell you over and over and try to convince you that that is not true, that you're not good enough to have a relationship with God, that God would not be pleased with you. He's telling you all of these things and you're buying into those lies. Meanwhile, Jesus has paid the price once and for all. It is done. It's just your choice whether you're going to live in that truth or not. Am I going to live as if me and God are okay? Or am I going to live as if I have to earn it almost every single day? Some of us feel like we can't hardly feel God's love unless unless we feel like we were good boys and girls today. And that's not the way this whole thing works. That's not the way the cross works. If that's the way the cross, if Jesus' sacrifice only paid the price for our sins when we were being good, that would be a, it would be no different than the, than the sacrifice of the bulls and the goats and the sheep that had gone on before. It would be no different at all. But when we say Jesus, his death on the cross paid the price once and for all, it paid for all of your past sins. It paid for the sins you're committing right this moment. Letting your mind wander while I'm preaching an awesome message. It, pay, it, 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 pray, it paid for all of your future sins. It paid for them all. You and God are square. The ground is level. The ground is level. You are able to approach a holy, perfect God, not based on your performance, but just simply based on Jesus. And it's your choice whether to believe that or not. And you can spend the rest of your life kind of wrestling with this idea of, was I good enough today? Is God pleased with me because I was good enough today? Or, or, you know, <clears throat> kind of convincing yourself that there's all this distance. Or, just be with God. The last verse there says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And Paul says, you know, all this happened. Jesus gave his life for us. We are justified. It's just as if we never sinned. Our sins have been erased. We've been reconciled to be able to have a relationship with a perfect, holy God. And this is why we sing songs. And this is why we come to church and we fellowship with one another. And this is why we go out into the community and we serve people and try to show them the love of God. This is why we love each other intentionally, uh, even when we don't necessarily feel like it. And this is why we give. And this is why we 
do everything that we do. This is why we get into the word to know more about God. This is why we pray. This is why we celebrate. This is why we're thankful. All of this, because what Jesus did, I can praise him because that, that's worth praising. Amen. This is, this, is, this is what brings us to being the church that we are. Well, look at this next slide. I've said this dozens of times. I'm going to say it again. Easter proves that God was God, that Jesus was God. But it's Good Friday that proves that he's love. Don't, don't miss that. It's Easter Sunday where Jesus sets himself apart as a God and raise himself from the dead. We're going to get to that part of the story next week, but he raises himself from the dead. Okay, definitely God. You control everything, right? But it's Good Friday. It's this act of dying for us on the cross. There's nothing supernatural about the death. In fact, it was a complete restraining of the supernatural. It was him holding everything back and just giving himself over to his creation to just be savaged. And this is where he proves that he's love. And you've never seen love like that. You've never seen love like that. You'll never see it again. I don't care how special your special lady is. I don't care how special your special guy is. I don't care how brilliant and empathetic your wonder child is. You've never seen love like this before. Never. That Jesus would willingly go and die a death that he did not deserve. That was our death, actually. It was the one we deserved. And he steps up for us and he allows himself to just... You'll never see love like that. That cross, I've got a weird relationship with crosses and... um, I grew up in churches where the crosses were kind of gold and glittery on the back wall. and There was nothing gold and glittery about that cross. Nothing. It was not ornamental. It was not a piece of jewelry. It was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. I'm going to say something, and it's going to get me in trouble with some of you, and it's fine. Uh, I, I actually like the Catholic cross more than I like the Protestant cross. I like the crucifix. I like the image of Jesus on the cross. I know, I know, he, 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 you know, he rose again. He's not dead. I, I get that. I get the theology of it. But it's a way more beautiful cross. Jesus, that supreme act of love of him giving his life for us is so much more beautiful than your sanded, embossed, pretty little cross that you might put up on the wall or wear around your neck. I challenge you to see the beauty of the cross. We're, as Protestants, we tend to rust, rush past Good Friday. Get to Easter, get to Easter, get to Easter. But I just challenge you to sit here for a little while. Because this, yeah, Easter's glorious and it's victorious and it's exciting and it's, it's God being God. But you've never been loved like you were loved on Good Friday.
Never. Some of you have trouble kind of sitting there with the cross. Actually, have you ever known someone who would not allow themselves to be loved? Somebody comes to my head right now where just somebody that you, you would just pour love out on this person and try to make them feel accepted and wanted and valued and everything else. And they would experience that and you would see the light return to their eyes and then they would push you away. And they'd go through this cycle of, I'm feeling loved and that's great, but I can't handle this. I'm pushing you away. And some of you are like this in your relationship with God. You get glimpses of the kind of love that he feels for you and then you push him away. And you've got this whole back and forth thing with God where it's like, I'm on fire and now I'm distant. And now I'm on fire and now I'm distant. And I think the thing that is keeping, is making you keep God at arm's length is not your own brokenness. I think the thing that makes you keep God at arm's length is the cross. I think when you start to feel that kind of love, that level of love, it is overwhelming to you because you know how undeserving of it we are. And I think it causes you to push God further. Yeah, I'm not going to push him completely away, but I'm not going to allow myself to really and truly be loved the way that he loves me. I'm telling you, you'll never experience love like that anywhere else in your life. It's illogical. It's scandalous. It doesn't make sense. It's completely undeserved. The cross is God. The cross is God's way of looking at us and going, there's nothing I won't do to be with you. There's nothing I won't do to be with you. Like we kind of look, we, we, we kind of look at God as some sort of kind of ethereal, uh, universal manager that's out there kind of keeping tabs on things. And we hope, hopefully we're doing a good enough job. That's not God at all. God is this passionate love that he has for you. He's passionate about, so passionately in love with you and with me that there's no length he wouldn't go to to restore our relationship with him. And he did it once and for all, and you keep trying to convince yourself that that's not true. Every single one of us sit in this room completely loved, completely accepted by God. Not because of who you are, but just simply because of Jesus. I want to challenge you to embrace that love. Allow yourself to sit here at the cross for a little longer than you normally do and just be loved. You guys have heard me say before, God didn't save you so that you would stop cussing. He didn't save you so that you'd get your life right. He didn't save you so that you would be a good church goer. He didn't save you to sing in a band or sit in a pew. He didn't save you to teach lessons. He didn't save you to serve the community. He didn't save you to do any of this. He saved you so that he could be with you. That's what he wants. He he does not so concerned about your actions for him. He just wants you to be present with him. He wants a relationship with you. Now, the beautiful thing is that when we get into a meaningful relationship with God where we really begin to embrace his love for us, that love 
it's, it's, it's literally like I, sometimes I go to conferences and hear people speak and teach on certain topics. And, and sometimes all the teaching's so good, they'll say it's like, you know, trying to drink from a fire hose. It's just like, ah, it's too much, you know? And that's the thing about when you expose yourself to God's love, you are a too small a vessel to contain all of that love. And when we open ourselves up to the love of God and that love hose turns on and just fills us up faster than we can even hardly take it, the result is I got to share it. I got to share it. I got to tell people about it. I got to serve him. I got to, I got to, you know, live my life for him. But that's not to earn his love. It's the result of the love that's in us. And there's a difference. Open yourself up to that love. Just sit here and be loved. Allow it to just kind of wash all over you. One of my pet peeves is is churches or people who will criticize churches. They talk too much about the love of God there. They don't talk about anything else. That's asinine. It's absolutely ridiculous. As if we could talk too much about the love of God. If that's the only thing we ever talked about until the doors of this church close someday, it still wouldn't be enough. It still wouldn't be enough. He set everything right because he loves you. Because he loves you. So just just be with him. Just be with him. Let's pray. Father, I love you so much and I I thank you so much for your word to us this morning. I thank you for your sacrifice. For your love. God, forgive me when even still I find myself trying to earn your favor and earn your love. Just daily remind me that the price has been paid and you just simply want to be with me, to be in relationship with me. For those of you that are Christians in the room, you've been following God for a while and maybe you still find yourself trying to garner favor with him by your busyness for him. Let your work for him come from the overflow of his love in you. And learn to just be loved by him. For those of you that are in the room that maybe you've never begun a relationship with Christ and you're still kind of kicking this whole Christianity thing around, you're not, you're not sure about it. I'm telling you, there's a love available to you that you have never experienced and never will experience again through Jesus Christ. And would you just right where you sit, if you feel the Holy Spirit drawing you in to begin a relationship with him, would you just quietly, right where you sit, just pray to your pray to, your, pray to God in, in, in your head, just pray. Just ask him to forgive you of your sin. Thank him 
for paying the price for your sin. Commit to him to spend the rest of your life in relationship with him. Ask him to be the Lord of your life. Whatever words that is for you, just pray those words right where you sit. Father God, again, we love you and we thank you so much for your love. We know we don't deserve it. But we we also know we can't live without it. And so, draw us in closer. Draw us in closer. Help us to be thankful for the cross instead of something that we see as some sort of shameful thing that we got to rush past. Help us to look at your cross and see exactly how much you love us. We thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name.